Today we celebrate Gaudete Sunday, Latin for rejoice. It's the opening antiphon, the first word is rejoice. The day in which the church asks grown men, grown men to wear pink. And we celebrate this day in anticipation, kind of like these labor pains of Christ coming into the world. And like this anticipation of joy of Christ coming into the world. But we continue this um, homily series on the precepts of the church. And today's precepts have to do with fasting and tithing. And they're somewhat appropriate because of what we heard in the gospel with John the Baptist baptizing the tax collectors and sinners. And they asked the question, what should we do? What should we do? And John the Baptist replies that the Savior will come and he will baptize with fire. And he will clear out everything that is on the, on the threshing floor. In other words, to make space to receive the Savior, to receive his spirit. So I would like to just do a brief overview again of why we believe that we can even have precepts in the first place as Catholics, what they are, and uh, what our response is to them moving forward. So first, what are precepts? The precepts are the low water marks that establish us as practicing Catholics. They are an expression not of divine law, that is given directly by God, but of canon law. That is law that is written by the church. The question then becomes, well, does the church have authority to write law? If that was the case, why didn't God just give it? And the reason why the church has the authority to write law is because God gave it the authority to write law. In Matthew 18, we see this clearly whenever Jesus says to his apostles and entrusting it to their successors, whatever you find on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Basically, what you do on earth, what you write on earth, will be uh, written in heaven. And so then that is given to the church. Why? Because Jesus has to ascend into heaven so that he can take our human nature into the presence of the Father. And he entrusts the Spirit to the apostles at the Last Supper, saying that the Spirit will lead them into all truth. And then we can simply say that Canon law is the law that Jesus would have written had he still been here in his human nature. But he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he entrusts his spirit to the apostles. So canon law is something that is given to us with good reason and given to us within God's will. And then the question is, what is the purpose of it? Well, the divine law or the moral law is something that orders the individual in order to attain God himself. What canon law does is that it orders God's society. It orders the church, his, his mystical body. And it orders it from within, giving it different moral, uh, exer- I guess, yeah, moral commands. But it also orders it from without, so to speak. So it's to say that this is what the church looks like. This is the identity of the church to show to the world what the church is, what the body of Christ is. So brief review, we went over three of the precepts. We went over that what the church is, it's people who worships God on Sunday and rest from servile labor. A people who goes to confession once a year because God's people says sorry frequently. A people that um, receives communion during the Easter season because we await the resurrection and because we believe that we can be in communion with God even in this life and hope for him in the next. So then these fourth and fifth precepts have to do, again, with fasting 
and tithing. Fasting and tithing. So I'll spend a lot of time talking about fasting. Um, yeah, I, I thought this was going to be a short homily yesterday, uh, but it wasn't. So um, I like to apologize beforehand. But there's a lot to say uh, about fasting. And I'm going to go over a lot of the, the legal stuff just to clear out any doubts about what is the church's teaching on fasting and abstaining. So the fifth precept is that we are to observe the prescribed days of penance that is given by the church. So first and foremost, the first canon in regards to fasting is that the divine law, so God's law, not church's law, the divine law, God himself, binds all the Christian faithful to do penance each in his or her own way. In other words, what the canon is saying is that if you just fulfill the requirements that the church gives you for fasting and abstaining, it's not enough. What the church is saying is that the church expects us to fast and do penance each in our own way, because God expects us to do that. And that's clear biblically whenever Jesus says to his disciples on the mount, when he's given the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, when you fast, when you give alms. Not if you pray, if you fast, and if you give alms. He expects it. It's an expectation that we fast. So that's the divine law, that we fast, that we do penance. But the church says in the same canon, to be united by some common penance, penitential days are prescribed. So again, the church gives us these canons, these precepts, so that we can show to the world as a unified body what the church is. So there are, and again, these two days, like we have to fast more than this for salvation, right? For our own sanctity. Um, there are only two days of fasting within the whole church calendar year. There's two days. There's Ash Wednesday and there's Good Friday. And what fasting means by the law is one normal-sized meal and then two smaller meals that do not exceed the size of that larger meal when they are put together in their summation. Now, again, we fast to show to the world the Catholic identity, that we are church body. So it's an egregious mistake whenever we have crawfish boils on Good Friday. Like, can't do that. You know, Cajun, Cajun culture, Catholic culture. You know, Catholic culture above Cajun culture. We have to hold to that. And it's, it's two, it's 50% of the two days of the year. You know, so we have to put that aside to be with, to belong to Christ's body and not just to the culture that exists here. So unless you're like boiling five pounds and your crawfish are unseasoned, then do what you want, you know. But, um, but we have to acknowledge that, that we show to the world Christ's death whenever we do do penance on that day. Now, again, only two days out of the year are we prescribed to fast. But then there's the question of Fridays. What do we do on Fridays? Abstaining, abstaining from meat. Now, the Code of Canon Law does say that we are to abstain from meat every Friday of the year. However, the Code of Canon Law gave power to the conferences of bishops to alter that canon. So in 1966, the USCCB, that is the Conference of Bishops within the U.S., changed the canon, lifted it, 
to where now we can still eat meat on Fridays, um, except during the time of Lent, and not be under the pain of sin. Now, the church did not say that in the U.S. to say, it's because we're Americans and we're spoiled that we do this. It's not what the church said. Um, it was because, looking at the history of the church and recognizing the state of America right now, that meat is not something that is extraordinary. Meat is now commonplace. And so to give it up, um, the U.S. said, was maybe perhaps less of a sacrifice. And so while the U.S. said that we still do need to do penance on Fridays, in that statement from the USCCB, they called Fridays should be in each week something of what Lent is in the entire year. So basically, Friday is as if you practice the day of Lent. That's every Friday throughout the year. Every Friday throughout the year is, is in each week something of what Lent is in the entire year. Now, it still did give pride of place to abstain from meat because the tradition of the church that Christ gave his flesh for us on Friday, so we should give up flesh as well. But it did also suggest that maybe within America, we should give up something like stimulants or alcohol or something like that on Friday, another form of penance. Um, other suitable forms of penance, a very common one, is just to pray the Divine Mercy Chapel, especially at the Hour of Mercy at 3 p.m., for the needs of the church, not just myself, but for the needs of the church, since Christ gave up his body at 3 p.m. So we pray for the reconciliation of the church. So Fridays, in summation, Fridays in Lent, we are obliged to abstain from meat under pain of sin. Fridays outside of Lent, we are not obliged to abstain from meat in the U.S. We still are obliged by divine law to do some form of penance on Friday. Because the, the USCCB says that as Friday should be in each week something of what Lent is in the entire year, so Sunday is as Easter is in the entire year. That we, these are the two fundamental events that are most important in the life of the Christian. The death of the Lord and the resurrection of the Lord. And so Fridays, because that happens bodily, it happens in reality, so it should have real consequences and bodily consequences on us throughout the week, on Fridays and on Sundays. Now, I do want to talk about, after all this legal stuff, what is the biblical and traditional basis, and then what are the benefits, why we actually need to fast for our own sanctification. Now, the biblical, I've already uh, mentioned, is Christ saying, when you pray, when you fast, when you give alms. He assumes it. Traditionally, again, fasting was a way of showing our identity to the world. So the Jews had fasted at the time of Christ on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So you see from the earliest of writings in the Didache uh, that the apostles and the early church fast on Wednesdays and on Fridays. Wednesdays and Fridays, again, because Christ gives his body, uh, on Friday, and also to set up themselves apart and to say, we are the Christians, you know, we are not the Jews. So even traditionally, fasting has always been at the heart of the church, it's never not been in the life of the church, except up until possibly now. Now fasting has lost a lot of its, um, I guess, just a lot of its seeming use within American culture, and I guess within Western culture, 
And one of the reasons why is this long developing uh, cultural idea that starts with the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau um, in the Renaissance period, uh, that man is good fundamentally. Like whenever man is born, he has no problems with himself. He is, he's just good. His, his nature is perfect. Everything is fine. I'm good, you're good. You know, like we do this a lot of times, like with, uh, with children, you know, like, like this baby, look, this baby is perfect. Like he does no wrong. Like I'm pretty sure your baby, you know, cries a lot too and probably fills up a diaper with no problem, right? Like we, like we all have problems, right? We're, we're born, the Christian idea is that we're born with a corrupt nature. We're born with a nature that is flawed and that is turned inward. And so we lose this idea of fasting. We reduce fasting to something that's only necessary if I'm bad. You know, I only need to do fasting if I fall into gluttony or if I have some struggle with lust or something like that, or if I need to fast for somebody else. But to fast for my own salvation, that's not necessary. And that's wrong on a couple different points. So we know that there are the consequences of original sin that make me crawl inward. But also... The Christian, what fasting does, is that it provide. It tells us that the Christian is made for God. It tells us that we are made for God. We can often fall into this kind of malaise where we think, you know, what religion is supposed to help me do is to help help to make me just like a moderate person. Moderation in all things, right, Father? Moderation even in religion. Moderation in all things. Well, that's that's not true. That there is moderation in kind of like the natural virtues and how we interact with like creation and stuff. But there's no moderation in faith. You know, like you would never tell somebody like, you know what you have is too much faith, you know? Or like you would never say moderation in hope, like, you know, you hope way too much. Or love, like, you know what your problem is? You would love too much. You know, you probably need a little bit more hatred, right? Like that these virtues exceed infinitely. They go to God himself, who, who is infinite. And so what fasting does, it's, it gets us out of this idea that religion is just supposed to help us like, live in this world nicely and enjoy the gifts of this world actually rightly. And this is actually, a lot of times like people will confess or talk about hedonism, you know, like the sin of hedonism of just like taking in pleasure and stuff. Well, the earliest hedonists weren't people like... Hedonists would probably look at people who go to like Nighttown or whatever, like on on a Saturday and just go crazy and be like, yeah, that's not it. That's not what we were talking about. You know, hedonism was this idea that you had to maximize all the pleasures, not just the sensual ones, but also the intellectual ones. And so for them, it was moderation in all things to where you, you know, like you would actually like to have a couple glasses of wine would be like just a hedonistic thing but you would never fast as a hedonist like you would never give those things up and so what fasting does is that it shows that our end is not in the goods of the world it's not just in our it's not just like we we know that by fasting that the goods of the world will not provide happiness that we are ultimately made for god each and every one of us each and every one of our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And so for that reason, fasting is necessary for each and every one of us. There is never a saint who ceases to do penance 
because they are sanctified. They all do penance, and they all fast throughout their entire life. Fasting is a necessary ingredient for the Christian. What it does is that it also um, elevates us toward our supernatural end. It makes us desire God. Gary Lagrange says that, and just as like a check for us if we're not fasting, this is what Gary Lagrange says. If we do not see the need for self-denial, it is because grace is scarcely, scarcely alive within us. If we do not see the need for self-denial, it is because grace is scarcely alive within us. Why? Because grace is supernature. It's above our nature. And so there are things that we need to deny in our nature because God is above our nature. So if we do not need, see the need for self-denial, it's because grace barely dwells within us. Now, we also fast in imitation of the crucified Lord, uh, fasting in regards to, obviously, Christ himself fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights. And we also fast for reparation, that I fast for the reparation of the church as well. As Jesus says, some demons can only be cast out not only by prayer, but by fasting as well. This demon can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Now that I've spent too much time talking about fasting like I predicted, uh, I'm going to spend just a brief amount of time on tithing. So the fifth precept is that we are to provide for the material needs of the church. So we are to provide for the material needs of the church. Now, this does not necessarily mean tithing, although tithing is the ordinary way of providing for the material needs of the church. You can also provide for the material needs of the church, not just by our treasure, but by our time and our talent. And God, again, it is divine law that we give our first fruits over to God. That is not church law, that is divine law. When you give alms, when you give alms, not if you give alms, but when you give alms. It is divine law that we give our first fruits over to God because God gave over his fruit, first fruits to us whenever he gave his only begotten son to us on the cross and then placed the deposit of the spirit within our hearts that God has given us the first fruits of salvation even now. So we give to God our first fruits. So there is reason, and it's not just that the church needs money. But I will talk about money briefly. Um, so, hypothetically, I, I crunched a few numbers. Uh, Our Lady of Wisdom is an exceptional parish, and it does have a large annual budget. It has a large annual budget while having very few families. So, we only have 350 families. Um, for context, St. Pius has several thousand families. And we still have an annual budget of $1,250,000. That's our annual budget. It's of all the different retreats that we offer, all the different personnel that we need to have to have the, the ongoing culture of student center here because of a lot of the different things that we provide, obviously just maintenance and upkeep. Now, if 350 families are here and the median household income is $60,000, if that is the median household income, 60,000. And every one of those families gave a 5%, not a 10%, a 5% tithe, then we would collect from the offertory $1,050,000. So just $200,000 short. Now, 
we do collect about $700,000. So we do, we are a very generous parish comparatively with other parishes. But it's still 5%, not 10%, and we would almost meet that annual budget if that is a median household income of 60000 which might be a little low. So there is room to give. And again, we give not primarily, like God doesn't say in the scriptures, give so that Our Lady of Wisdom can have a maintenance man. You know? Um, it wouldn't be bad if he said that, but he didn't say it. So, uh, but so because we're to give our first fruits, because we give our first fruits because God has given us his first fruits. Again, that Jesus summarizes the whole gospel before he goes to talk about his death. Whenever he points out the woman who gives her last two cents, not because the temple treasury has actually benefited from it, but because she gives herself, because she gives everything that she has. And Jesus praises that real woman. So what is tithing supposed to look like? if we are able to tithe. It needs to be planned, it needs to be a priority, and it needs to be percentage and progressive. Four Ps. Planned, it's something that I I regularly do. Uh, Probably the easiest way is online giving. It's something that I do where you you give online and then automatically it drafts. You don't even have to think about it. And you do it at the first of the month, it becomes also priority because it's your first fruits. It's not something that's the leftovers. It's something that's already baked in. There's a percentage that I'm supposed to give, but it also should be progressive. That it should be something that's ever increasing because ultimately eternal life is whenever I give myself over to the Lord in the full gift of self. That I should not be giving less as time goes on so that I fall into selfishness, but I should be giving more. Again, that uh, Christ scolds the one who says, I have... I have this bumper crop. What shall I do with my barns? I shall tear down my barns and build bigger ones. That Christ demands all from us on the day of judgment. So we ask that in joyful expectation of the labor pains in which Christ gives, uh, in which Mary gives birth to Christ into the world, that we can clear out whatever is necessary to accept the Lord through our own fasting and our self-denial and through our own generosity according to his will.